Greetings to all of you hearing this message on August the 13th, Wednesday in the year 2014. My name's David Thompson. For those of you that are new, I am seeking to share this message out of the Spirit of God speaking through me. By seeking to minister as the Word of God commands us, as the oracles of God. And one of the things I do as part of that is I cast lots on the Scripture, knowing the sovereign power of God, who is attached by His Spirit to every particle of existence, to be able to use this in order to lead me into the Word of God. My trust is not in using this method, but in God. And if one is living a life that is holy and pleasing to the Lord, he often, almost always speaks. I don't know if there ever has been a time where he hasn't. The only time he hasn't has been when there's been some failure in my life or sin. So anyhow, today I received Philippians chapter 4, and I want to share what the Holy Spirit is saying to myself to the body of Christ, to all those who have been foreordained to hear this message by the foreknowledge of God. I will first read this passage of Scripture. It is more difficult some of the times when I get a message to share something from a passage. I would say this is probably one of the more difficult passages to really get a message from. Nevertheless, God by his Spirit will speak. So I will read Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Dias, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have done well, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. 
For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full. Having received of Aphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. One of the themes that really stands out in this particular chapter is peace. God is described more than once in relation to peace. For example, in verse 7 it says, And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In Philippians overall, the emphasis, though, is more on what the word Philippians means, which is running the race. Philippians means someone that is a runner, that rejoices to run a race. And of course, the other emphasis in this particular chapter is also on joy. But beginning at the beginning of this chapter, we see, first of all, the tremendous love that Paul the Apostle has for the corporate body of Christ. He doesn't just see them as a corporate beauty of mosaic before God. He sees them all as individual stones in that beautiful mosaic before God with such incredible love that it's like someone that is his only precious son that he's had as a father or his only precious daughter that he's had as a father. Or like Joseph, the one that was loved by Jacob more than all the others. And so he says, my dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. I mean, he has such a love for this body of believers that they are his very joy and crown to bring before God who is his full delight. So he sees in his love for God, for indeed God is the ultimate focus of his crown and his joy. But in that love that he receives out of loving God, is, it is brought forth in a fullness in him that sees within the beauty of God's creation such preciousness which was first birthed out of the fear of God and Paul for such preciousness of love towards God. You see, when you really love someone, they're not just treated as common they're treated as, as exceedingly precious. And the genuine fear of God is a perception of God that sees God in his ultimate perfection of love with the eye of one's heart in a way that brings utter awe and reverence and a preciousness of appreciation that as a result, does not treat God as commonplace, but as high and lifted up in every aspect of one's life. And of course, it is out of the revelation 
of the purity of God's love, that is the integrity of his love, that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest contrary to his love. That is the revelation of the holiness of God that I'm speaking about. That there comes the recognition of the greatness of God's love, that it is which is perceived in that out of this holiness, God is able still to show mercy to us through such an incredible love that caused him to humble himself more than us mere creatures and to suffer more than us mere creatures so that we could be reconciled to God. For it is only in God that there is the moral capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice that is without sin. It's a lot to say, but it is what we perceive in the majesty and the glory of God. It is first the holiness of God out of which transcends the creativity of love that is fully manifested in this incredible love that loved us as his creation so much that he provided a way to assure destiny and purpose to his creation, to us as individuals, if we will but repent and turn to choose to acknowledge his mercy out of first recognizing that he is ultimately trustworthy in the fact that his love is without corruption. It is totally pure and must judge all that is contrary. And it is from this perspective that then we can, instead of being bitter and blaming God for all the suffering and the evil in the world, recognize that the consequences of that is because of the free choice of his creation that he's given them so that they can have the potential to be married to him in love. That out of that free choice to go the other way and rebel against him is the cutting off from the very source of harmony in life with the consequences of suffering and death. And so we do not have a fist at God, but a total opposite view of God. In the midst of the greatest contradictions of suffering that we see around us, we still recognize that that is because of being cut off from the source of love, of ultimate love, which is the source of life everlasting. For it only is this love with this integrity that can be transcendent in mercy, that there is the capacity to hold unlimited power in life without corruption, without dissipation, which is indicative of it being the very source of all goodness that is ever enlarging, ever enlarging in greater and greater creativities of fulfillment without end. Well, that, I always like to describe God before I get into a message. And I often repeat the same teaching that I've just given you for those that are new. Not always and sometimes in different ways. But this is the relationship that Paul has with God. And it says in the word of God that the love of God is shed abroad by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And it is because of the power of God's love that can be imbued into our being and overflow in our being out of reciprocation of who God is which results in conversion and that reciprocation is first initiated with a choice to recognize who God is, which is a choice to fear God. That is the understanding of the fear of God, a recognition of this, as it were, ultimate negative, which is the integrity of God's love requiring judgment, and this ultimate positive that comes out of that, which is the mercy of God that is, that is manifest and reveals the love of God and his favor towards us to assure us forgiveness and destiny without end. In this passage of scripture, Paul has matured to the place as a leader in the body of Christ where he has such an incredibly great respect and love in his heart 
for our fellow believers. And we also are to enter into such a love for our fellow believers in Christ. And for the lost, that we would have tears for them, that they would, through our prayers, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be delivered from their choices that are destructive and lead to eternal separation and suffering, cut off from the love of God. Now, in this passage, Paul is beseeching certain ones, Eudias in verse 2 and Syntyche, that they be of the same mind. So it is possible to have different thinking in one's mind and allow a different opinion that may be aligned with genuine conviction and genuine conscience to cause a rift that takes away peace from a relationship that should be reciprocative as our relationship should always be with God if we are abiding in that perception out of the fear of God that I've just described. And that's happens through spending significant time in prayer, learning to focus with the eye of our heart and who God is by waiting on God and curbing our own self-initiations of presumptions that are insensitive to the perception of the preciousness of who God is. In relation to this relationship that Paul has with the body of Christ, of desiring to see the flourishing of God's children out of such love for them, he emphasizes the importance of unity. Even if there is disagreements on a mind level that is aligned with our conscience. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, verse 3, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Notice that Paul says and addresses those that he knows in this body of believers that are likely in leadership as his true yoke fellow. He views himself as yoked in a way that is with total integrity and trust in his brother or his sister. He views that yoke as a labor that involves hardship, but is bearing fruit that is for eternal life and is a genuine yoking in hardship together, in rejoicing through all things together, in blessings together in all things, knowing a yoking with one another in the body of Christ. And as such, we are moved out of love, this love that's shed abroad by the Holy Spirit through revelation that comes by the Holy Spirit out of perceiving God through a life of prayer. It moves us to do things with one another, to labor together, to see others enter in to their destiny inheritance for which inheritance for which God created him them for. Whether they are those that are suffering in bondage as fellow believers and have not overcome addictions or problems, or whether it is the lost or others. There should always be a desire to step out in unity with others to bring forth the good news of the gospel. And he also views this not just in a consciousness that is in this present time, but he views those that he is co-laboring with that are addressed as true yoke fellows or true yoke sisters, he views them as also 
those that he will be with for eternity. For he says their names are in the book of life. When he's addressing True Yoke Fellow and mentioning the ones to co-labor with, he ends with saying, whose names are in the book of life, the last part of verse 3. And we, brothers and sisters, should not be just viewing that we're doing a task in the body of Christ to complete something in order because we want to see this or this happen. We should be seeing everything in view of eternity, that this is just the beginning of something that will go on in a far greater way in the fruitfulness that will come out of it in eternity. That is how we are to perceive one another and begin to co-labor together with one another. Many years ago, I remember wanting a wife, and I'm still single, not married, praying for the right one to be revealed. But even if that doesn't happen, fine. But I remember many years ago being in a single social where people were coming together as a church because, you know, singles are trying to find their partner. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. But it was just all social things that we were doing that made me feel so empty inside. Why can't we do things together to reach the lost? Why can't we learn to pray together? Why can't we go out instead of doing socials and go out and do projects together that help us to learn what it is to be in the spirit with one another, to share with one another? I remember a church I went to where they allowed where they had meetings where everyone could get up and give a five-minute sermon to one another. Things like that are used or very good things that leadership should allow as facilitations to cause the body of Christ to come forth in their gifts and function fully in their gifts. And it shouldn't be that the body of Christ becomes something that is so shallow and merely social. It should be that we are so caught up with love for God that we find our fulfillment in redeeming the time, not only individually in our lives, but with one another. So it says here that we are to review one another from the perspective of eternity and in laboring for the gospel with one another that we would enter in to this yoking. Now, the next verse says... Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's saying and commanding us to rejoice in the Lord. And he's, it's, it's very emphasized that this is very important. Why is it important to rejoice in the Lord? Well, there is another verse in Philippians, or not Philippians, Philemon 1.22, or is that Philippians? It may be a misspelling there. Let me just see if it is Philippians 1.22. It'll only take a second to know that. Philippians 1.22, if it's Philemon. No, it's not Philippians 1.22. Then it is Philemon 1.22. It's just the way it's abbreviated here. In Philemon 122, it says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. It uses the phrase joy of faith. And rejoicing comes out of exercising our faith towards God. But it involves our initiation. That's why it's commanding us to rejoice. It is possible for us to lose out on the joy of faith because we have failed to initiate from our own spirit an expression of faith towards God. The joy comes out of faith. But faith involves the exercising of our spirit. It says, Therefore, we having the same spirit, we, we having the same spirit of faith, therefore we believe. 
it talks about our human spirit being the spirit of faith. Now, the word faith means persuasion in the Greek. It, it's the word from pistis, which is the word for belief. So belief and faith are very um, basically the same word in the English Bible in most cases. And that word basically means moral persuasion. But it involves our human spirit. Now, our human spirit is best represented as a hand. A hand that is as a closed fist is in a state of hardness or a heart that it is a, represents a heart of hardness. In other words, that our soul is in a state of hardness. Whether I use the word, I think it's more accurate to say spirit of faith. That's what it says here in this passage. And of course, the spirit is that aspect, particularly in the New Testament, that is understood to be the capacity to express, to worship. The soul is the consciousness of who we really are. It involves, yes, intellect, mind, and emotion, but if you look at the original deep meaning of it, it has basically the understanding of who we really are in ourselves and to ourselves. And I won't go into that. That's not necessary. So our human spirit, when we choose to initiate first a choice to recognize God for who he truly is in his holiness, that this is a beautiful thing. It says, give thanks at the remembrance of God's holiness. And there are many other like verses in the Psalms. And recognizing that the holiness of God reveals the ultimate trustworthiness of God, that he can contain goodness without an iota of corruption. And so we give thanks at the holiness of God. And there's an initiation that takes part in our spirit to recognize God, that that, that is basically what it means to fear God. You might under, ask my, might be wondering what I'm getting at here. I will explain. So first again, there's that recognition of the integrity of God's love, out of which springs the recognition of God's love expressed in creativity that's ultimately expressed in this love to have a corporate bride that involves the perfect atoning sacrifice of God himself to have that bride. It is the mercy of God. And so it is in the recognition of first the holiness of God and then the mercy of God that springs forth the beauty or the wholeness of God. And so we see this incredible wholeness that we know cannot be in our own being apart from receiving this quality of God's ultimate love that brings wholeness into our lives. And so we experience through a choice to recognize God by exercising our spirit, not only perceiving the wholeness that is in God out of the holiness of God, but experiencing a wholeness entering our being that takes away the grasping, self-grasping nature that is destructive like a black hole in outer space, making choices that always are not the best choices because they are being pulled in towards self. And it is only love that can choose the highest lasting good over any more immediate gratification. Only that love would not have destructiveness in it, and that is the love that is from God that is now coming into our being in wholeness through perceiving out of worship who God is. But there's an aspect here where we choose to rejoice and exercise our spirit in faith. Now, what it says in the word of God is that faith works by love. And it's when we choose out of the fear of God to recognize this ultimate perfection of love that there is now 
the revelation of what is ultimately trustworthy, which allows the hardness in one's spirit or soul or heart, if you will, that's like a fist, to open up in response of surrender and selflessness, of trust towards what is perceived is ultimately worthy of trust and is ultimately trustworthy. This ultimate quality of love that contains unending goodness that's ever growing. And this is what the Word of God says. It says that faith works by love. Yes, it's by this perception of the love of God that now there is the response of faith. But we also need to exercise our spirit to rejoice in exercising our spirit towards the recognition of who God is. And so, how do we rejoice? Not in ourselves, but in the Lord and who he is. And we are commanded to rejoice in who God is, in his holiness, and in his mercy, and his goodness. And the result is that our faith grows, for joy comes out of the exercise of our faith, as it's termed, termed in Philemon 1.22, the joy of faith. Then the next verse says this. It says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. This word careful, I looked up what its meaning would have to be. Now I will just go to just do a summation of verses four to eight first before I explain that. And I say this in the notes I made in the half hour that I meditated on this chapter. We are to let our mildness of forbearance not react back at difficulties. This word, be careful here, for nothing is talking about a mildness in forbearance. In other words, for forbearing, to react to difficult circumstances out of an uptightness. We're not to... Oh, pardon me. I did make a mistake here. I skipped verse 5. I meant my mistake here. It is moderation that means this. It says, let your moderation be made known unto all men. This word moderation means a mildness of forbearance. If you study what that word means in the original, is the understanding of forbearance that chooses to be forbearing and chooses to be calm such as in difficult circumstances where one would tend to panic and react. So out of rejoicing in the Lord and perceiving who God is, the next thing that comes out of that that's so important is a forbearance that is able to be called. Why is this moderation important. This, this calmness important. Well, in this verse, it says, let your moderation be made, be known unto all men. And then it states, the Lord is at hand in this verse. What it's saying here is if you're conscious that the Lord is next to you in your life or at hand in your life, why would you be in a panic over difficult circumstances you're in if you're really trusting in God? If you're really exercising your spirit and rejoicing in who God is, the exercise of your spirit, which is the joy of faith, results because you're conscious also that God being who he is to you also means he is with you in 
your trial and that his creative working is being allowed through the pain of what you're going to. And so as a result, you can rest in difficult circumstances. And when you do and the world sees that, they know that they are seeing something that isn't natural and that could only be of God. And so it is a testimony to the world that draws all people onto Christ when you enter into a relationship of intimacy with God that in difficult circumstances manifests total mildness out of a forbearance in those circumstances because of being conscious that the Lord is with you. So the word of God is commanding us here to let our Mildness of forbearance be made known unto all men because we are conscious that the Lord is with us through exercising our spirit to choose to rejoice in who God is. So we go on in this passage here. And the next thing Paul emphasizes is be careful for nothing. But I want to first read what I put in the outline that I made on this passage here before I go on with that. We are to let our mildness of forbearance not react back at difficulties so that it can be known to all men in view of the fact that we know the Lord is near us. Thus, we should never be uptight or anxious about anything, but rather bring everything to God with thanksgiving and prayer. So, The way, the second way to enter into a mildness of forbearance is not only to be conscious that God is with us out of the consciousness of rejoicing in who God is, but it is also out of bringing everything before God with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And so this word be careful for nothing means basically to be anxious for nothing. So we don't have to, again, become all uptight. Oh, I want a wife. Oh, how come everything's against me every time? I remember going through that for years and decades before God purified that out of my life. Doesn't mean that I'm, well, I have come to a place where it just seems like I've been broken in like a horse that used to buck the rider. So I'm not concerned or anxious about anything. I know that God has my best interest in mind. Sure, I have desires for for a wife still and other things, but I'm not concerned. I'm married to God. I know completeness in God because I am walking in a relationship with him where I'm learning to have such a consciousness of my union with him that everything that is happening in my life is being brought before God with making my request known and saying, God, I know that you know what's happening in my life. I know that you're experiencing the pain in my life and and I'm supplicating before you for that and also for others that are suffering worse than me and I'm filled with thankfulness that I'm saved and it doesn't matter if I'm martyred or beheaded or tortured. I can even be thankful in that because I know you are allowing whatever happens in my life to be that which molds me into a beautiful gemstone for eternity to fit in a beautiful mosaic with the family of God in heaven. I am conscious that my destiny is with my fellow true yoke fellows and sisters, my brothers and sisters, in eternity. And so, I'm always being thankful. I'm always being conscious of what God has saved me from. I don't want to ever forget how great God's mercy has been to me for how much he's forgiven me for all the things that have have happened in my life where I was so rebellious that he could put up with me when he should have sent me to hell. I am thankful just for that. I'm thankful because I see others suffering even more than me because of the curse that is reverberated from the beginning through Adam and Eve, through Satan even before that, and through generational disobedience in the past generations. 
that is reverberated down through the genes physically and, and, through the, and into the soul and other parts of one's being. But I know that in all of those things I see, people can be redeemed. If they just turn to God, they can be healed spiritually first, even if they're not healed physically. And it can even be that they can be healed physically all the more when they are healed spiritually. Yes, I don't understand it in my mind. My circumstances are really, it seems in my circumstances, like God hates me, is what the devil would like to tell some people and get them to believe so that they would join the devil in bitter rebellion against God. But God is wanting to teach us through every trial how to be thankful. For the word of God commands us to in everything give thanks. And I remember before I was led to this passage of Scripture today that the day before, there was just things that were irking me and bugging me a lot, and I was getting upset at times and wondering why God had me in these circumstances. But I chose to be calm. I chose to worship God. There was a few times where I was kicking like a horse that isn't fully broken in, but overall, I was giving a sense of calmness to someone else and truly loved that other person, although I was concerned, so concerned about certain things, wondering why, and I recognized, yeah, you're, you're teaching me this. This is why you have me in this circumstance, Lord. You're trying to teach me not to compromise. You're trying to teach me to, to be truthful with people. You're trying to teach me to show more compassion and sensitivity to someone to have patience and forbearance with someone. That's why you're allowing it, so that that will be worked into my life. But sometimes when the trials are so great, it seems like God himself has chosen to be against it, against us. That would be the case with Job. Was Job tempted to believe that God was against him when his friends were accusing him that God was against him? Of course he was tempted to believe those things. But was God against Job? No, God knew that the suffering that Job was going through was necessary. It was a necessary process to transform him into a greater and far deeper relationship with God. And the word of God says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And in the case of Job, it, it was an issue of the mind not being able to put together why God would be letting all these things happen. And that was all the more the issue with his friends that falsely accused them in their attempt to comfort him and his wife. But we know in the end that Job said, I have heard of thee with the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, and I repent in dust and sackcloth and asses, for you have exposed what is in my heart that is deceptive and in rebellion against you, and through it I turn to you for mercy, and I ask for cleansing, for you have shown me your holiness through this trial. Yes, the accuser of the brethren, it says that we are to rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulations works perseverance in us. This is what we're talking about in this passage is forbearance and which is similar to perseverance. And it works that in us, that we might be brought into a wealthy place, as King David said, through the fiery trials. And so it says in Peter that we are not to think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try us, as though some strange thing happened to us, because it's bringing the dross to the surface so that we can see the ugliness of that dross that was in us and repent with all our heart and see it skimmed off through the blood of Christ and be transformed into pure gold that has no dross in it, that is fit as a vessel of honor unto the master's use. Oh, may we learn to know a deep circumcision in our hearts through every difficulty, 
but also may we know what it is to bring those difficulties before God in the rejoicing of faith with thanksgiving and making those needs known unto God and thanking God for all that he's allowing, knowing that there's coming a time where if we persevere, there will be breakthrough. But if we deceive ourselves and are holding on to sin in our lives like some do, they will continue to remain in bondage until the pressure gets great enough to get to the root of what they are holding on to. And some never let go. And so they continue in bondage all their life. If you hold forgiveness against your partner because you divorced your partner, there's this spirit of adultery and divorce in you of this world which you need to repent of that is divisive, that is indicative that your heart is deceived into a state of hardness. Repent of those things with all your heart and recognize the greatness of God's mercy to you. Now, in all of this, the emphasis here is that the peace of God, which passes all understanding in verse 7, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God is what passes all understanding. In other words, you will experience God's peace in the trial that will be greater than the tendency to believe the lies, to get upset over the contradictions of trial in your life that you can't understand. The peace of God will be so great that it will be greater than the anxiety and will swallow up the anxiety with the presence of his peace when you abide through that trial with a genuine faith in God and learn to be for having this forbearance that is filled with a mildness in the midst of the trial, being conscious of God with you, filled with thankfulness and praise in your circumstances, learning to abide in the one that is the author and the finisher of your faith that loves you so much. He suffered more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be part of his family in heaven forever and ever and ever. Trust him through every trial and believe as you continue to pray that if you have a physical infirmity, that God can heal it. But don't try to look at the physical infirmity. If you're physically blind, pray more for the spiritual sight first, and then God can heal you, whatever your condition is. But God wants us to have spiritual eyes that do not lose their focus through difficulties. I can see that I can end up preaching a message for a very long time. I'm going to continue here, though. I forgot to put the timer on. I have no idea. But I will continue to preach this message here. And so we go on to verse 8 here. And it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I'm just going to repeat a little bit of the notes I quickly made in my half hour of meditation here. And this is a repeat of something I've already said. In this way, we allow the peace of God even when circumstances seem to be totally against our understanding of the way things should be in our alignment of life with God. This keeps our heart abiding in Christ Jesus. And then secondly, or thirdly here, I say this, we should also dwell with our heart on all things that are pure, honest, and good and seek to follow and live like the leadership that is an inspiration and example in all these things. And so Paul is saying the next thing you need to do in order for the God of peace to be with you, as it says in verse 9, it says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So he's saying it's important that we dwell, that we abide in all the things 
that are from God, that are pure, that are lovely. For all things that are from God are pure and lovely. For God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Those that perceive God as a mere enigma through the trials and become bitter at God are having an idolatrous view of God that is allowing them to be used by the enemy and manipulated by the enemy into rebellion against God. But if we dwell on all the things that are of God, for it says that every perfect and every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. If we dwell on all those things that we see in the creation around us that are good, that are pure, that are inspiring, and then on top of it, we recognize those around us that are living that are in a living example of the grace of God in the midst of trials in our lives. These are the true leaders, the ones that have been through the wilderness, that are victorious in the midst of need and trial. They inspire our lives, and we need to be doing what we see they do in order to enter into the same relationship as obviously they have that inspires us. Indeed, then the God of peace shall be with us. And we go on in this chapter, and if I kept preaching at the same rate going along these verses, it would be a long message. But I will continue to speak for the main points here just a bit further. And so in this last part, what I put on here, which is the third point in what I saw in this chapter, is I say this. We must learn in whatever our circumstances, whether of great need or abundance, to be content. And that's what's in this last section from verse 10 to 11, basically being said. And so Paul is describing, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care of me hath flourished. He mentions how he is so thankful that they've come to a point where they're sensitive to his needs as well and have love to give, maybe even out of lack because they have such a trusting relationship in God. And then he goes on and he mentions, listen, I have learned, he says this in verse 12, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So God allowed him and instructed him to enter into times of abundance where he would learn to trust God that that abundance would not draw him into lukewarmness or into insensitivity or pride so that he wasn't troubled when he had abundance. But he also knew what it was to have God instruct him to enter into situations of great need where he experienced suffering and hunger. And he's learned in everything to abide through those things in the peace of God and to know a joy in the midst of those things. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And that is the real secret. We will often conclude in this circumstance, I, it is overwhelming. I won't be able to go through it. Does God want us to have that attitude or to trust that in our weakness, that we can bring our weaknesses to God and God can strengthen us in our weaknesses? It doesn't matter how difficult what is before us is. If we know a relationship with God, we know that out of the weakness of our own tendency to trust in ourselves in those things and work them out, that we can bring those weaknesses to God. Maybe we're trying to work it out and we're getting depressed because we realize how helpless and hopeless it is. But we know that we can bring our weaknesses to God because it commands us in the time of need to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain grace in the time of need. 
The time of the need is a time of great humbling before God. And it's when we're humbled before God and perceiving in our weakness who God is that we're entering into the genuine fear of God that also humbles us. For God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. And it is then that we begin to experience out of humility before God and yet having a bold faith in the midst of that humility and weakness to experience his strengthening of us so that we can say with Paul that even though we were pressed in difficult circumstances to the point that we despaired of life itself, the purpose of it was that we would not trust in ourselves but in God that raises the dead that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, that we would know the commanding of his authority and power in us in the midst of difficult circumstances to be those that overcome in all things, that learn to abound in all things and excel in all things, not in our own selves, but in learning the secret of sufficiency, of abiding in the very source a victory which is in the love of God, in that love that is ultimate, in its perfection of purity and its transcendence in mercy to bring forth destiny. And so Paul wants us to learn such a relationship with Christ. And so I just said as a subheading in this last point, this requires the exercise of faith in Christ that he can strengthen us to be content first and also to provide our needs because we are always giving as, God, as unto God to others. Now the other factor in this is that we are those that have learned to have such a love that we are not trusting in uncertain riches and we can even give when maybe we're in a situation of great need that could depress us, and we still give our tithe. We trust God that this is an expression of trust, and sure enough, God comes through with provision and answers when we have a heart that not only in material things, but in every way is learning to be giving with thankfulness unto God first and then expressing a giving heart unto his creation around us, unto the body of Christ and all things this is what God is calling us to enter into, a relationship with God, where, as, what was it, Hudson Taylor, where there was, the, in the Boxer Rebellion, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, I've forgotten, of missionaries that were martyred in China. He, I don't know if he made this hymn, I think he made this hymn, but it goes like this, and I'll close by singing this hymn. Jesus, Jesus, I am resting in the joy of who you are. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. And it goes on and on. Jesus, Jesus, I am resting in the joy of who you are. And he's saying that at the very time when all of his dear brothers and sisters were being martyred. And right now, at this time in history, we are seeing hundreds and thousands of Christians being martyred as never before in history. We've seen, if you haven't seen, the pictures of heads decapitated on the posts around cities by the Muslims. But in the midst of all of this, we know that we can trust God, that our destiny is in heaven. If Christ went to the cross and John the Baptist was beheaded, it is only God that decides what our destiny will be. And we leave it in his hands and we rejoice that whatever he allows is for the greatest purpose of our destiny in relation to God for eternity. But we also believe for him to deliver us and we do not accept death, but we accept resurrection life in every situation and trust him 
to bring resurrection out of it, even as Christ trusted the Father and never broke that trust being God. And thus, by the spirit of holiness, was raised from the dead as because his spirit was in selfless trust through the trial before God, stretched out as an open hand that represents the purity of holiness in relationship with God because we are not moved by the circumstances. I could go on and talk, but I will not. And so it says in verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The secret is to abide in the Almighty's one Elohim, Jesus Christ, in the midst of whatever our circumstances are, that we would know the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe and know the breakthrough of his provision in every sense of the word, spiritually and physically. The most important is spiritual, for God has chosen the poor, the material poor, as rich and heirs of the kingdom, because in the midst of experiencing poverty, they don't have any tendency to trust in uncertain riches, but have a relationship with God that allows his power and his resurrection to abound in them. And yes, he can provide materially to those he's ordained to use those sources for the kingdom of God. God bless you all. I will leave it at this. Thank you for listening to this message until I share again the word of God.